My dear brethren and sisters, last time we were looking at a great tree, the, the tree of Babylon, that was cut down, and firstly in the application of Nebuchadnezzar, a great lesson of repentance and of dependence upon God was learnt, and also it prefigured, by way of contrast, that other little twig that should be taken from the utmost twig, as he says in Ezekiel, the contemporary prophet, at chapter 17, and well may Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel have recognised these words. Thus saith the Lord God, Ezekiel 17 and verse 22, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one and will plant it upon an high mountain and eminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it and it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar and under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing in the shadow of the branches thereof as shall they dwell. Clearly a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ and the humble way in which God would bring him among men. And it has all the qualities, hasn't it, of the great tree of Daniel chapter 4. It is tall, it is spreading, it is strong, it is vibrant, it is fruitful, and it is protectorate to those who nestle under its branches. And all the trees of the field, verse 24, all the nations of the earth shall know that I, Yahweh, have brought down the high tree, the Babylonian tree, whose eclipse now in the form of greater Babylon awaits God's judgments, that I have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. I, Yahweh, have spoken and done it. And so this other contemporary prophecy of Ezekiel's that Daniel and Ezekiel would have swapped with each other and all the people of the exile would have spoken about together. They would have looked at the one and looked at the other and wondered what should be when the little twig should become a great tree. Well, in process of time, it occurred. And a child was born to Mary of the line of Judah but of those details of Bethlehem and of Nazareth Mark has no record and we are as we study this record my dear brothers and sisters in the gospel of Mark concerning the coming of the son of God we're going to study it as Mark's record we're not going to study it diverting one uh, into one record and another with very, uh, well, to any great degree, I like to study the, the life of Christ by taking a gospel. When a gospel was sent forth, people read it in its context there and then. And I believe that's how it was written and how it was intended to be read. No doubt there's lots of benefit, too, from finding the other uh, correlating passages and linking them in from time to time. But I think that can be confusing sometimes. And in the limitations of a Bible school, I think we're best to look at the Gospel of Mark and gain what Mark intended through the Spirit to relate to us about the Son of God. So it's Mark's record. The purpose of our studies perhaps is summarised by the Apostle Paul when he says in Philippians chapter 3 
of his great longing to know his master, that I may know him, he says. I count all things in Philippians 3 and verse 8, but the dung, that I am but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ. There's an intense longing that he might truly be identified with his master, be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is by God of faith. That I may know him, he says again in verse 10, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain at the resurrection of the dead. You know, we can really ask ourselves, do we know our master? It's very clear from our last study that we live in very important times. When that tap comes, my dear brothers and sisters, and the angel takes hold of our shoulder, and we are taken to the place of judgment, and we're going to stand before our master, you can ask yourselves, you can know yourself now, what your reaction will be. You can contemplate that even now, today. In quiet meditation, you will know the answer to that. How you will feel at that time, do we know him? Do we love him? Is there a fellowship of sufferings? Are being made conformable unto his death? Do we know something of the strivings and earnestness of our master? So that we can rush up to him as we would rush up to a companion. Perfect love, casting out fear. Because... We are his and we know we are his. Now this study, we hope, can draw us nearer to him, to the one in whose presence we shall shortly st soon stand. The writer is, John, is Mark, John Mark, as he's elsewhere described. And he is an interesting character. Just a brief review of John Mark. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, we find that he was surnamed John and that his home was central to the ecclesial life at that time. He was obviously very close to Peter, so that in this chapter, Acts chapter 12, where Peter has been taken by Herod, when Peter should find his way out of that prison and return to the body of the disciples, then it's to the home of John Mark that he goes. That, of course, was an accident. It was because Peter knew where the disciples would be where they would be meeting at that time. And so he goes to the home of John Mark, where many, we read in verse 12, were gathered together praying. He was therefore very centrally involved in ecclesial life in the Jerusalem Ecclesia. Why did he have a, such a prominent family? We find in Colossians chapter 4, <coughs> Colossians chapter 4, And verse 10, that Mark was sister's son to Barnabas. That is to say, Barnabas was his uncle. His mother was Barnabas's sister. So he was in a prominent family. And as you will remember, they were natives of Cyprus. That is to say, their home was in Cyprus. But there was a very tragic event that happened in John Mark's life. 
John Mark had wished to go away with uh, uh, Saul and Barnabas. And so in Acts chapter 13 and verse 3, Acts chapter 13, sorry, and verse 5, we find that on the first missionary journey, which was by anyone's reckoning a new experience, when the gospel in the hands of Jewish people, Paul and Barnabas, should go into, lands, into the lands of the Gentiles, we read in verse 5 that John was also to their minister. That is, he went along as a young boy to reap the rich experiences and to also help in perhaps some of the matters of servitude, the caring of perhaps of material things, of making some of the arrangements a little easier for Paul and Barnabas that were so engaged in this remarkable work. However, in verse 13, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia and amazingly, John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. It would seem that when he got onto that uh, southern part of what we would call Turkey today, that his nerves gave way. And in the strangeness of the circumstances, he felt no longer at home, and he could not bear with the, with the intentions of this journey. There was nothing Jewish about the area in which they were. Paul also at this time was ill. The trip seemed to be foundering in difficult times. And John Mark seems to have felt insecure. And this young man who had come from the very hub of things in Jerusalem, in the very centre of the Jewish ecclesia, where he was very close to the apostle to the Jews, could not bring himself to accept all the strangeness that was involved in this new work. And so, as we might expect, when he did depart, he went right back to Jerusalem. He did not go to Antioch from where they had started. He went back home to Jerusalem. And so in chapter 15, Paul felt insecure in taking him on his secondary missionary journey. Barnabas, verse 37 determined to take with them John chapter 15 and verse 37 whose surname was Mark but Paul thought not good to take him with them who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work which shows very clearly that when Mark departed it wasn't just because he had a tummy ache or some such other ailment it was because of some deeply founded reason he could not bring himself to feel happy in this new work so Paul thought it not good to take him with them. And it was a very sharp conviction of the Apostle Paul. He knew the work they were involved on was a founding work, a work that had been spoken of in the prophets. There could be no question as to whether it should succeed. And therefore in choosing people to go into that new work, it needed very dependable people, people who had been tried and proven. And so he said to Barnabas, I'm sorry, I do not wish to have something personal against uh, John Mark but there's no way I can agree to taking him out upon a mission which has such fundamental importance to the future work of God upon the earth. And so he refused him. However, verse 39, Barnabas took him and sailed thence to Cyprus. And as you will remember from chapter 4, Barnabas was a, uh, 
a native of Cyprus. And so when John Mark therefore went to Cyprus, it was like going to the home or the circumstance, the area of his cousins, because Barnabas was his uncle. And so Barnabas took him and went to Cyprus so that he was able to get back into the work again, but in an area which must have felt considerably more comfortable to him. It's chapter 4 and verse 36 that tells us that Barnabas came from Cyprus. Now he regained in strength, did John Mark, and the very fact that he has written a gospel for us tells us very clearly that he must have uh, once again assumed a very real importance in the work of the truth in the days of the apostles. So in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, we find a new appreciation of John Mark by Paul. Colossians 4 and verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Mark, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. There is now no question about the Apostle Paul. In fact, he's even advising others that they should in fact receive John Mark willingly. And it's a, a lovely thing to look at uh, uh, three other references, beautiful references. The first in Philemon, verse 24. Did you say Philemon or Philemon? Or... All right, Philemon, okay. Philemon and verse 24. There we have Paul's fellow workers. And among them, included in the list, in fact mentioned first, is Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow labourers. How lovely that is. Whilst on the one hand there had been that strong contention and Paul had stood by his conviction that Mark should not go, now he's included as one of Paul's fellow labourers, even with the great Apostle Paul. And of course at this time he was in Rome. He was in chains. So he has been reinstated completely in the apostolic team. In the first of Peter, chapter 5, we see that he still has a very close relationship, as we might expect, with uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, with the Apostle Peter. So in the first of Peter, chapter 5, we read in verse 13, the church that is at Babylon, and I presume that that would mean the congregation of the believers who were in the old city of Babylon now that might come as a surprise to you but there was a very large congregation of believers at Babylon because there was a very large congregation of Jews in Babylon in the 4th and the 5th centuries AD the largest congregation of Jews in the world was found at Babylon and in fact that's where the Talmud the very recognised Talmud, there's two of them, but the one that has the most uh, notoriety is the Babylonian Talmud because it was written by the Jews who were in Babylon in the 5th century AD. No doubt it was upon a different site to the old Babylon, but nevertheless it was a very large city and Peter, as the apostle to the Jews, I believe like he had gone to Cappadocia and other parts, also went to the area where there were many Jews as there was in the first century too. And so among them, he has developed an ecclesia. And so we read in verse 13, the ecclesia at Babylon, or she at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, 
and so doth Marcus, my son. I do not believe that there's any reason to spiritualise the word Babylon there at all. In chapter 1 and verse 1 it gives a description of the areas to which Peter is writing and they are not very far away from the actual city of Babylon since there were many Jews there in the first century and that that, uh, that grouping continued right through for hundreds of years it's very reasonable to assume that that's at Babylon itself. But how lovely there to notice that they at Babylon elected together with you saluteth you and so doth Marcus my son. So isn't that a lovely footnote to, the, to uh, the Apostle Peter and his relationship with Peter. But I'll tell you something that's even more beautiful. That relationship we might have expected to persist. Have a look at this one in the second of Timothy. Not only was he now a son to Peter, but he was a very revered and loved son of the Apostle Paul. In the second of Timothy 4, and in verse 11, in the last dark days of the Apostle Paul, when he has fought his fight, he's finished his course, kept the faith, and he knows that death is only just over the brow of the hill, so to speak, there are two young men who are making their way to him in Rome. He appeals to Timothy that he should hasten. He says in verse 9, Do thy diligence, Timothy, to come shortly unto me, for things are cold. They're dark and they're miserable here in Rome. Even some old servants have given way. Demas hath forsaken me. Having loved this present world, how could you forsake a man in those circumstances? And is departed into Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. And it seems that Paul was in a very real state of loneliness. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark, Timothy. Timothy, take Mark and bring him with thee. For he is profitable to me for the ministry. What a delightful comment that is. So says the Apostle Paul to the Gentiles. To his son in the faith, Timothy. Timothy, he says, take, take Mark, who was Peter's son, the Apostle to the Jews, and bring him with you to me at Rome. And so we have the two sons of the faith. Timothy, the son of the Apostle Paul, spiritually of course, and Mark, the, the son of Peter, the apostle to the Gentiles, coming as it were hand in hand, that they might together bring their source of comfort and encouragement to this old apostle as he's here in the dungeon at Rome. What a beautiful footnote to the life of Mark. So it was a very beautiful character who wrote the Gospel of Mark, to whom God gave this wonderful record. What is the purpose of that uh, record? Well, you know... I know that we hear various ideas about what each gospel stands for. I must confess that I'm not convinced of those ideas at all. In fact, when one looks back through history, one finds that the arrangement, using the four faces of the cherubim, has been variously uh, related. In fact, almost every combination has had its time when it was popular. And it seems to me that if you wish to, you can make a very good case for any of them. And so I must confess that I'm not convinced about relating these to any particular face of the cherubim at all. I feel that I can make an excellent case for any one of them as to what the ox, the eagle, the man and the lion represent. So I believe that the most logical thing is to look at the record of Mark itself 
Nobody knows better who wrote Mark and for what purpose than Mark himself. What does he say? It's just standing there, staring us in the face. Verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the purpose of Mark. It's the gospel of the Son of God. That's why he has written it. And nothing could be more emphatic. No amount of our own, uh, of our own uh, reasonings could be more emphatic than what Mark has said. In fact, if we were to defer from that, we have really questioned his own writing. And you know, that theme is found throughout the Gospel of Mark with a real emphasis. What's the first incident that he records? It's the baptism. We haven't got any of the other records about his birth. As I mentioned before, Bethlehem and Nazareth and Egypt and so on, they are all omitted. It goes straight to the lesson of his baptism. What was the outcome of his baptism? Well, it was to declare, as in verse 11, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So this book emphasises that point. And if we come right to the end of the Gospel of Mark, it's still the point which is being emphasised. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 39, we have it now even out of the voice of a Roman centurion. Verse 39, when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the spirit, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And so also in chapter 16 and verse 19, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God, where only, of course, a true son should be. And there are, in, there are many other references uh, to the statement of him as the, as the Son of God. I've got a list of them here for you, if you would like to take them down. Chapter 3 and verse 11. The statement comes forth from the mouth of unclean spirits. Chapter 3 and verse 11. Chapter 5 verse 7, from the mouth of a demoniac. At chapter 9 and verse 7, at the, st at the time of the transfiguration. At chapter 12 and verse 6, they will reverence my son in the parable. Chapter 13 and verse 32, neither the son, he says, but the father. At chapter 14 and verse 36, Abba, father, is the description. And even the high priest, at chapter 14, verses 61 to 62, had the recognition that he was the son of God told to him. So it truly is the emphasis, I'm sure, of the Gospel of Mark and it's upon those words that he opens his gospel. So there's a superhuman origin uh, to the one whom Mark is describing. And it is that very fact, that superhuman origin, that gives the potency to the gospel itself. It couldn't be that that was not the great theme. You know, when you turn to John, he makes the point about that. In the 20th chapter of John, in verse 30, he says... Many other signs truly to Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written. What is the reason? That ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What's the point of that? And that believing, ye might have life through his name. You know, you can say so easily, can't we, that Jesus is the Son of God. But what's the import of that upon our lives? You know that we should believe 
that a man who was born of Mary and lived upon earth and spoke and did among men the things that he did, if we can believe, my dear brothers and sisters, and come to see accurately and know and understand that that was the Son of God, we have come near to a very awesome and glorious thing. We can see what God has done for the salvation of men. These things are written that you might know that he is the Son of God, says John. And that believing that, you might have life through his name. There's a power in that fact. There's not just another academic fact. There's a magnificent power that's standing in our midst, walking among us, speaking to us, was none other than the Son of the living God. That's a very powerful and glorious and converting fact as we contemplate that message for us this morning. So we have come into the atmosphere of a very awe-inspiring and glorious character, none less than the Son of Deity. It says that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And again, there's an expression that we may well pass over. I want to give some light to that expression. Where does the term the gospel come from? In the Greek, it's the word evangelion. E-V. A double G E L I O N Evangelion from which we get the word evangelical and evangel and so forth. And we say that the gospel means the good news. Well it does in English, but in the Greek it was a very special word. You won't find reference to it in the Greek language on a general basis. It's a borrowed word. It's taken straight out of the Hebrew prophets. And if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't draw special attention and take a little time upon it. But because it's a borrowed word, we therefore are wise to look at its context. From whence does it come? Well, it comes from three passages in the prophecy of Isaiah. It's a distillate of a very exciting message that is the very core of the prophecy of Isaiah. So we turn to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me. Note that. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me. We know that Jesus quotes these words. This then is a description of him. They are his words indeed. Because Yahweh hath anointed me. Interesting. Anointed me. To preach good tidings. Unto the meek, he hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of our God. And you know, of course, the Lord stopped one sentence before that at the end of to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh when he quoted those words in the synagogue of Nazareth. When did Jesus receive that, that spirit? Well, when was he anointed, as we read in that verse? Well, of course, it was at the occasion of his baptism. So you see that the word gospel is a precise word and that Mark should open up saying the gospel of the Son of God is a very precise term. 
it immediately keyed in with various Old Testament passages. Here is a passage. That word good tidings there is the word from which it is taken. When did the Spirit of the Lord God then come upon him? Well, in the very first incident that Mark records, which is his baptism. There's a lovely precision about the use of the word evangelion in the Gospel of Mark. It was then that he was anointed. What for? To preach good tidings unto the meek, to bind up the brokenhearted. In a sense, therefore, that's the beginning, isn't it? The beginning of his ministry. There might have been 30 years before that. But in a very real sense, this is the beginning of his work in which he went forth to preach unto others. So we turn over to Isaiah 52, where the second of our references is, is found. How beautiful, verse 7, upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. In fact, all of that expression, bringeth good tidings, is the word from which the word evangelion is taken. It's a verb actually in the Hebrew, it's a noun in the Greek. But it has the sense of publishing good tidings. And it's from that that the Greek word has borrowed a special word not found at all in the, in, in the normal use of the Greek language, but borrowed from the Hebrew writings. So he, hath, he is the one that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings, there it is again, of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Something was going to come from God, closer to men than had ever been in the past, so that Thy God reigneth. And the effect of that would be excitement and joy by all the hearkeners uh, to the message of good tidings and peace. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. Is this the effect upon us, my dear brethren and sisters, as we come to study the gospel of Mark? Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye. There will be peace and accord among men when Yahweh shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For Yahweh hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. Expressions which Simeon and Anna have felt when they came to the babe in the temple in Jerusalem. For of, of Simeon it says that he, came, that he spoke of the consolation of Israel, which is the same word as comforting his people. And of Anna it said that she came among those who were looking for redemption in Jerusalem. And so it is found there in verse 9. So when the babe came, all of this began to spring to life again with new meaning because there was joy, there was a cause of great excitement. There was peace among those who recognized that God had among men sent good tidings in the form of his son. 40th chapter. And verse 9, O Zion that bringest good tidings. Really, it's not correct like that, isn't it? Does your margin say, O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion? Does it say that? That's correct. It's not Zion that's speaking. It's the one that brings the good tidings that is speaking. O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, 
get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Same expression in the margin again it should be. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And my dear brothers and sisters, that's as much needed in the land of Judah today as it was when the prophet Isaiah said those words or when they in part came to fulfilment in the days when the Son of God was born among men. Do you know the great cities? The great cities of the Bible are still houses of, mu of Muslim teaching. So is Bethlehem. So is Hebron. So is Jerusalem, so is Shechem, and so is Nazareth. The great places, you might say, of the Bible and of Christianity. They are still the stronghold of Mohammedan, Mohammedism. And there's a great need for one to come again in the second coming of the Lord and say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. But when he came the first time, they, they found their first application. And there was a cause of great joy to those who were there. You notice how it says, Behold your God. When Mark records it, he says, The gospel, the good tidings, taking it out of Isaiah 40 verse 9 and those other passages, he says, The gospel of the Son of God. So that God was going to come in his Son. We were going to see the grace and truth of the Father in the begotten Son of God. And where was the incident again that would proclaim him as the Son of God? Of course, it was at his baptism. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this chapter, Isaiah 40, is all about the baptism of John that should bring that revelation of the glory of God. It was from this chapter, verse 3, that John the Baptist quotes which we shall return to in just a moment. So again you notice that there's a very remarkable precision about the opening statement of the Gospel of Mark. Well, in verse 2, he quotes firstly from Malachi chapter 3. Mark chapter 1 and verse 2, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. If you like to compare that with Malachi, you'll see that there's a slight change. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. <coughs> Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. I'll send my messenger. Is that what Mark says? Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. See? So, Mark has changed Malachi? No, he's really only read it accurately. Because if you read Malachi again, it switches. Right? Here's the speaker. Behold, I will send my messenger. So there goes the messenger. He's the speaker's messenger. It's Yahweh. And he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord. Not Yahweh, but the Lord, whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. So the sense of Malachi is that one would come 
in the speaker's right, that is in Yahweh's right. And he would be the Lord whom you seek, but before him will be the messenger, who is God's messenger, but now because this one stands in God's feet, as it were, in his responsibility, in his name, he therefore is a messenger to go before the Lord whom you seek. So that when Mark quotes it the way he does and makes a switch from God to Jesus, he is really reading the Mal Malachi chapter 3 very accurately. And so it is quite appropriate that he should make the switch that he has. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee in the third person. Very interesting use of scripture. Then we read in verse 3 the words of Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. If we turn now to Isaiah chapter 40 where we were a little while ago where we learned how that Mark has really picked up hold of the the very central spring of the prophecy of Isaiah. You know what Isaiah means, don't you? The salvation of Yah. It really is a tremendous book. It's the pith of the prophets in their, in their pointing forward to Christ. The salvation of Yah. And those little expressions in 40, 52 and 61 are like the, the gushing wellspring that he has picked up and, and popped at the beginning of his book very beautiful use of scripture so Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 there we read the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness prepare ye the way of the Lord and that's of course Yahweh in the original prepare ye the way of Yahweh make straight in the desert a highway for our God well when you turn over to Mark you see that he again has done very similarly with that prophecy as he did with Malachi. The voice of one crying in the wilderness prepared the way of the Lord make his paths straight. And clearly Mark intends that to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Not Yahweh in the absolute sense. He's applying it to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's done with a quote from Isaiah as he has done with the quote from Malachi. Because this one, being the Son of God, is going to come in Yahweh's name. So having introduced him as the Son of God in verse 1, he comes in God's own name, and he bears therefore his authority. So you can see there's a lot of rich power, thoughtfully prepared by the Spirit in these opening words of Mark. Will you ever read them again quite so casually as we might have in the, in the past? I tell you what, we will. We will if we don't take our pens and make some little notes upon them. Because I find sometimes I can read a passage when I've, hit a, I've heard a, a beautiful exposition upon some passage and I, I read that subsequently and I think, oh boy, I remember that was really exciting sometime. Oh, what was all, why was it exciting? You think, darn it, I've forgotten what was good about it. It's because I never made any notes at that time. The old mind gets very uh, weak, doesn't it? And it forgets things. But if we make a few little notes along the way and we can pick up the essence of uh, some of those beautiful things that are engrafted into those words, 
it will always spring to life again and have a special and wonderful message for us. So verse 4, we come to his baptism. He's been well introduced to us, John, in verses 2 and 3, taking those two principal passages, Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and Isaiah 40 and verse 3. And there we read, John did, and I suppose we're a lot more careful now, aren't we? We're not just glibly reading it, but we're really careful for words. John, he's the one of verse 3. He's the messenger of verse 2. Got it? John. That's what Mark is doing. He's pinning his name to those prophecies. The messenger and the voice of one. John did baptize in the wilderness to fulfill the words of verse 3. Crying in the wilderness. <coughs> See the exactitude of this gospel? You're going to find that's a wonderful feature of this gospel. It's very exact. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The word repentance, as you probably know, means to change your mind. It's more than being sorry. Meta knowing. M E T A N. O-I-A Meta change Noe the mind Baptism is to change the mind And it really did have A very special relationship To the passages which have gone before Because in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 Whilst we relate that to John the Baptist As you well know There is to be a second application of that To Elijah The prophecy of Malachi being witness to that fact. So if we turn back to Malachi, there we have the prophecy in chapter 3, verse 1, but at the very end of that prophecy, in very distinct terms, it says in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. That really could not be more distinct there cannot be any reasoning of that passage away. And I believe the Lord substantiates it very effectively. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What will be his purpose? Repentance. Repentance in the absolute sense of the word. What does repentance mean? To change the mind. Look at verse 6. He shall turn the heart. There's repentance. The pith of the idea. Turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And my dear brethren and sisters, that passage is going to have a very real effect in the near future and it has a very real importance because when we go to the land of Israel today we find that that's exactly what they need. You think that you and I have a certain longing for the material things of life like all the rest of the Western world does? Don't make any mistake, so also does Israel. And increasingly, that is the theme of their nation. As they are moving away from being happy to put trees in the ground and to have a small tillage, now they are moving into a different era in which now they are wanting all the affluence and material well-being that other countries have got. And they are going flat out 
uh, to ensure that they get it. And they will. They'll outdo the Gentiles when it comes to material affluence. You just take away from them the yoke of their need for defence and that nation will burst out, I believe, in material well-being. And they're going to need Elijah then. Because it's just a few old codgers running around with curls in their hair, in their hair and black clothes and, uh, and uh, phylacteries and so forth. Just a few of them left in terms of percentage that are keeping that nation reminded of the fact that they originally came from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But they're a growing minority in the land. And it's going to well be indeed Elijah that's going to get hold of the hearts of those young Israelis that want to dress and think and act and have all the things that are in the Gentile world. And he's going to have to get hold of that boy and whip him back and say, you belong to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And that's what his work is going to be in the future. It's going to be a work of repentance in which he will take them from that direction and turn their heart back to the heart of their fathers and the heart of the children and the heart of the fathers to their children lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So there's a great work for Elijah to do. That wasn't the main point of our coming to this passage, but it was uh, something that disturbed me when I was in Israel. Very much. Well, that was the work of Elijah of old, when he took them to Carmel. Do you remember? He's, in his prayer he says, O Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, turn the hearts of this people that they might return unto their origins and see from whence they have come. Elijah's work was a work of repentance. You may say to me, well, he never achieved that. Well, he did go down to Sinai and he did complain about it. But later on, when in fact he should be, should be taken away from Elisha, and when he was taken up by God, lo and behold, there was school of the prophets. They were found in Jordan, they were found in Bethel and in other cities. Who developed them? Clearly that was the work of Elijah that had burrowed into their minds, so to speak, with all the tenacity of Elijah until he had been able to get people, those 7,000 that he went back and found and by the work of the voice, appealing with his voice, not with thunder and lightning and noise, but now through the power of his voice and the power of his inspiration upon them, he called them back to form little nuclei of strength in that land that were there ready to feed the 7,000. And so there were... There was a work of repentance done in Israel. In the far greater work, he's come, going to come to an even harder Israel in the future and he's going to turn them back to the God of Abraham, Isaac and of Jacob. So John came, Luke 1 verse 17 tells us, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Luke 1 and verse 17, in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John is going to be a forerunner to a forerunner. He's going to be a prototype to the work, the greater work that Elijah will yet do in the future. And so it's very appropriate that his work should be a work of repentance. Turn now their hearts back unto their fathers was the prayer of Elijah which finds its work now in its first application to John the Baptist here in verse 4. So he did preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. You see, there's a difference between repentance and salvation. You and I have a baptism unto salvation. This was not a baptism unto salvation. It was a baptism unto repentance. It re re represented a turning around of one's life. But the name of salvation had not yet come. They were being prepared to accept 
the waters of a greater baptism that would be in the name of Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost, Luke 2, uh, Acts 2 and verse 38. So every word is careful, isn't it? Carefully placed here in Mark chapter 1. Preach the baptism of repentance. And John was very popular. I don't know why. It's a strange thing to say, isn't it? That John was popular. When they went out to see him, he really did lace them. In the most unveiled words, he spoke to them. But we read in verse 5, they went out unto him, all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem even, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Didn't matter what breed they came from, to the soldiers he said, be content with your wages, which cut right at the quick of any soldier that ever was. Whether it was the Pharisees, he said, Say not unto yourselves that ye have Abraham for your father, for God is able of these stones to raise up seed unto Abraham. There was nothing about John that in any way patted them on the back or made them feel secure. And yet the strange thing is that they all acknowledged John. In Luke chapter 20 and verse 4, it says they all believed John. What an amazing thing. When in Acts chapter 13, the apostle Paul or went into the synagogue at Antioch, which was way off in the diaspora, in the area of Galatia, he stood up there and he quoted John the Baptist. Ever thought how remarkable that is? John the Baptist was an authority among them. They accepted John the Baptist. Later on in Acts chapter 19, there's another group that Paul finds in Ephesus. They say, well, we've never heard anything about the Holy Spirit, but we have received the baptism of John. They were Jews. Which shows that the work of John the Baptist has spread right through the diaspora. Isn't that interesting? So it was a forerunner, not only to the Jews who were in the land, but it was a forerunner to the Jews who were in the diaspora, in lands afar. There may be yet a foretaste of that, that may yet be a foretaste of things to come, in which I believe the work of Elijah will be widespread. How interesting, therefore, to find that he was accepted by the people, even though the one he came to to proclaim and whom he said he is preferred before me he was in fact rejected by them what a strange anomaly and to this day John the Baptist is a revered man in the, uh, in the religion of Judaism certainly too as far as John was concerned he had, he had no show he was clothed with camel's hair with a girdle of a skin about his loins and he did eat locusts like some locusts for lunch and wild honey which I'm told is the um, the carob actually it was in was ripening while we were there just, just recently it's a long do you have them in South Africa it's a long bean like thing that grows on trees and it's used as a substitute for chocolate because it's so sweet and when you look at it the last thing you feel like doing is eating it but in fact it's very pleasant it has quite a sweet uh, a sweet honey chocolatey type taste to it so there we were chewing these carob uh, pods the seed is not what you t eat it's the uh, pod itself so apparently it's believed that's what he ate let me tell you something about Jordan have you got some pretty little picture about Jordan in your mind darling little stream running through green borders with trees all dangling over wipe it right out You'll find that only right at the top of the land, where it just comes out of the Sea of Galilee. The area of Jordan 
would make uh, what's your desert called? The Karoo, isn't it? Would make the Karoo seem like a fertile plain. It is terrible country. Terrible country. I really mean that. It, it's mounds that lead to it. Mounds of dry, dusty, useless ground. It's set down because it's very close to the, to the Dead Sea, almost 1,300 feet below sea level. The lowest place in the earth. And because of that, the clouds come over from the Mediterranean, across, rising, up over the hills of Judea. And then, of course, they're 4,000 feet above the land below, and they just skip straight across the uh, valley of Jordan onto the plateau of Moab and Ammon in the, in the uh, distance. And they don't drop that much upon them. But the Jordan Valley is almost rainless. So you've got these dry slopes, one after the other. And all among of those, of course, the terrorists in recent years have hidden. And that's how they've been able to steal up to the border. Because it's useless country and it's full of little ravines and uh, alleyways. As these dune after dune lead down, eventually, well, where is it? Yes, you have to really look. You can't even see Jordan. Even when you're for a few miles and yet quite a bit above it, you can hardly see it down there because it's such a small little stream. And where John the Baptist was baptising, it wouldn't have been as wide as this room. That's a surprise, isn't it? No great Mississippi, no great uh, Orange or uh, Vale River. It's just a tiny little stream. And that's where he was doing his work. And the other thing about it is that it's uh, the growth that is around it is very thick, in time of flood of course it overflows all of that area and so on all the shrubs and bushes there's all kinds of uh, debris that's collected in the branches and so if you look carefully at the words of the prophets you'll find that it was the thickets of Jordan in which the lion would rest it's an area of, of mosquitoes and unpleasantness that was the whole idea it wasn't a lovely little lawn lined uh, beautiful lakeside scene it was an area that spoke of the grotesque nature of human nature. Of all that's filthy and rotten about human nature that needs to be swept away into the Dead Sea. That's the whole point of it. That's why John was down there in this plainness. He didn't have a nice uh, new suit on. Lovely tie and all the other things, you know, matching. He was not like that at all. He was down there in the most rudimentary clothes that he might draw attention to all mankind there was need to repent before God. And all this superfluity of things that we put upon ourselves is not needed. You can live from what God has given you. Give me locusts, give me what I can live. What a man needs is life from God. And to repent therefore is the condition for that. It was everything that was genuine about John. I think that's why they responded to him. With John there was no doubt about it. He was a man who was sent from God he was living an obscure and difficult life for the message which he had to bring. So he said in verse 7, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. This must have been what John was saying well before the Master came. That's not altogether obvious from the other records, but it's clear here. And that's interesting for us to see. It wasn't just that when the Lord came up to him, John suddenly thought, uh-uh, do I really have to baptise you? And then thought about stooping down to take off his shoes and thought, look, I'm not even worthy to do that. He thought the whole thing through a long time beforehand. He knew what his role was. 
Of course he knew what his role was. And wouldn't he therefore have uh, thought very, very anxiously about how he would perform that? And when he began to hear of the life of his cousin, when he began to hear of the gracious words, the enormous knowledge, the magnitude of his understanding, the beauty of his ways, wouldn't he have thought that it's altogether a greater role than me, than mine, that I should do this thing? He had thought it all through and he was touched in heart about it. And so he said to people, look, don't look at me, I'm just a voice. But I tell you, there comes one mightier than I. Why mightier? Because he's son of God. It all works in together, doesn't it? He's the forerunner that's speaking about the coming of God. About the coming of the son of God. So there cometh one mightier than I after me. The latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. You know, John's witness was later used by John the Apostle when he opened up his uh, gospel in chapter 1. It's very interesting to observe how he is used by John. You know that the the gospel of John is much later, much later than the other gospels. It clearly was written for a particular work. And there's a repeated emphasis upon the witness of John. Have you ever noticed that? Verse 15. 14 is spoken about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In verse 15 it says, John bear witness of him and cried saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now in the little reference that we have in Mark, just keeping our hand there for the moment, it says, there cometh one mightier than I after me. But that wasn't all that John had said. He had said, this was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. In what way was he before him? Because he was in the mind of the Father. He was greater than uh, John the Baptist, even as the light is greater than he who came to proclaim the light. John's witness is again taken up in verse 27 and repeated. Verse 26, John answered them saying, I baptise you with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who, coming after me, after me, is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. So again you see that he had clearly perceived what his role would be and the enormous responsibility and privilege that was his. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan where John was baptising. So again in verse 30 the words of John are brought to bear. This is he of whom I said after me cometh a man which is preferred before me. So this phrase after me was a very real phrase of John the Baptist. So we return to, to perhaps while we're in John, we could also look at the the, re, the attitude of John to the Lord Jesus in chapter three. There arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. 
And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing of himself, except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, the best man, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. There was a very willing acceptance by John that Christ was greater than he. Can you work in the company of brethren like that and to so happily acknowledge the attributes that God has given them? With John, there was not the slightest bit of competition. He recognised the good that God had given in various ways. He had played his role. He was joyful to do that. And he was willing, therefore, to exceed that Christ was greater. You know, there must have been, as the disciples thought about that, only one reason why the Lord Jesus was so much greater than John. I mean, look at them for disciples, as, as disciples. Remarkable lives, both of them. What was it that allowed John to say, there cometh one mightier than me. Look, I'm not even prepared to undo his shoelace. What was it that made him feel so inferior? It was because he was the son of God. And that's what this whole incident is directed to. Clearly, that's the intent of this first part of the book. And I hope, to, my dear brothers and sisters, that we haven't noticed what John did actually say. You know, the foot is the lowest member of the body. The shoe is that which is upon the foot. It's lower than the foot and, and receives the dust of the way. And yet John says, far from talking about something that has to do with his head or his hair, he says, I'm not worthy to touch his foot and undo his, his shoe latcher. That's how inferior John felt to him. And as the people thought about that, they must have thoroughly, surely put it together that what John's saying is that this is no mere man. This must be higher than the kings of the earth. This will be God's own firstborn. So he says in verse 8, speaking of the powers of the one to come, I indeed have baptised you with water, but he shall baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And so it was. He would baptise them with the Holy Spirit because whilst John might minister in water, this man was given the Spirit without measure, as was recorded of him in John chapter 3 and verse 34. And with that Spirit he did great wonders. You know, John did no miracle. There's a comparison of Elijah and Elisha there. Because Elijah's miracles were few and Elisha's were many. John did no miracle, but Christ did many. So he indeed did baptise them with the Holy Spirit. In the ultimate course that refers to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came and uh, fanning out from one source as flames, it came and rested upon the heads of the twelve. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised of John in Jordan. Straightway, coming out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. My dear brothers and sisters, have you ever endeavoured to picture that? Have you got a mental picture of that? 
Or do we, as so often is the case, just read the words? We're down by the river of Jordan. There is John and a large number of people on both banks of the Jordan. And there's a large group of people too that have come with Jesus at this time. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He had come from a long way away and he came down to these, this most unlikely spot of Beth Arbor, where a strange mission had been going on for some time. What an awe-inspiring time that is as he now comes to begin a work when John will recede and he will come out in brighter, in brighter light. And John is working away when this grand event now occurs. He came from Nazareth of Galilee. A bright light had shone among Zebulun and Naphtali as Isaiah had said in his ninth chapter. And he was baptised of John in Jordan. There's no record here of the discussion that went on between the two and of how the Lord prevailed upon him that it was right that John should baptise him. But then we read in that verse 10 that heaven responded to that. Even if we have read that with sometimes cold complacency, heaven never saw it that way. Straightway, straightway, coming out of the water, God responds, my dear brothers and sisters, when we respond. That's the answer, I might suggest, to all the question about how God works with us today. It's not that there's a bolt out of the blue and the Holy Spirit takes us over. No one experiences that. I've never experienced that. Neither have I know any Christadelphian that has. But I'd be far from saying that God does not operate in our lives. Far from saying that, my dear brothers and sisters. God responds when we respond. You have the sort of picture, as with Bezalel and others, that they put their hand to the work, their spirit was towards that work, and God cooperated with that. And whilst he gave them supernatural abilities there, yet the, the incident is typical of what can happen in our lives. If we give our lives unto our Father, if we commit ourselves unto his way, would we say that the work we do is purely by the strength of our own heart? And by no means. There's a cooperation. That's the word. A cooperation between God and man. And here it was too. His son, you see, had responded. He had gone under the water and heaven responded with that. Gloriously moved by the obedience of his son. You and I think, well, he went under water. Don't you see the point of that? What stream was that that came down from Adam and went into the Dead Sea? Adam was a city just up further. You know, there's a, a bridge today which is called the Bridge of Adam. There's a, there's a kibbutz up there called the kibbutz of Adam. They've recreated the sense. And you can go and visit it today. That's where the waters were pushed back when they went in, through the uh, River Jordan in the days of Joshua. Well, the waters came down from the glorious snowy mount of Mount Hermon. That was like a father over the land. It was the source of life and, 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 and joy and power of the land. And it came down, bubbling up through the earth and found its way through the, the sea of life the Sea of Galilee, and then went down past Adam and ended up in the Sea of Death, winding its serpentine way and descending, as the word Jordan means, descending, until it rested in the Lake of Death. You know, there's not a living thing in the Dead Sea. Not one living thing. It's dead. 
And the Lord, the Son of God, came and went in that stream and identified with that. That's why God loved him. God was moved by that. That was an act of extreme obedience. And it had all the moving ramifications of what would be seen in three and a half years' time upon a cross at Golgotha. It was the same principles. Thus it becometh us, John, us. Me and you, sons of woman. It becomes us to fulfil all righteousness and honour our Father's name. You know, when we do that, we never miss out. Even if in this time it might seem we do, we will never miss out. God is not unmindful. And just as it is true for us, so it was true for him that heaven could not stay. And in some very remarkable way, the heavens just just opened and there was a vision that let that, that could see right through to the clearness and, and glory of heaven itself. Coming down, there was the Spirit of God. It was seen as the beautiful fluttering of a peaceful dove. And it says it came and it descended upon him. It means that it abode upon him, as John writes it in John chapter 1. It wasn't in a hurry. It had found a place of rest. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me. He hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. It was a spirit of peacefulness because there was an acknowledgement by, by man of man's rightful place. You know, when we're dressing up the flesh again, when we're thinking of ourselves, when we're reaching for things that we want, think of that. That's what God wants us to do. Recognise the proper place for flesh and the exaltation of our Father's name. That's what he loves. And he will respond in greater ways than we could reckon if we will give him the glory. And so on this occasion, in a supernatural way, the Spirit of God came upon his Son and rested upon him. It came without measure upon him. It was the opening of the heavens it was greater than Sinai. There had been a similar thing. Well, it was a comparison. At the opening, the beginning of another institution, when upon Mount Sinai, Yahweh had stood upon that mountain. But what had there been then? There had been earthquake and fire and a loud voice that caused all that heard it to be in fear and to move away from that mountain. Not so here, is it? It's a ministration of acceptance. Administration of the dove of peace and of comfort. It's in the spirit of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. That follows on from the work that is uh, announced there as John the Baptist in Isaiah chapter 40. It was a work that men needed. So a voice came from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you know where those words are taken from? They're taken from Isaiah 42. I'd love to prove that to you, but just quickly look at those words. I told you before that Mark chapter 1 is like the core, the very spring 
of Isaiah. The gushing of the well of salvation that's in Isaiah, it takes hold of that central, central gush of life that's in Isaiah, the salvation of Yahweh. Behold my servant. Wasn't he a servant? There he was under the waters of baptism, identifying himself with all those scribes and soldiers and repentant men of Israel that came there. There he was in the midst of that same water, those son of God. Behold my servant. But I will not leave him there. Whom I uphold. And this was said like a, a beacon voice, as it were, on the banks of Jordan that time. Mine elect, my chosen one. Don't you think because he becomes identified with those waters and thus with mankind? That he's as all the rest of the filth of mankind. He's my chosen. In whom my soul delighteth. There it is. And if you think that's questionable, look at the next phrase. I have put my spirit upon him. There's the very event. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. That's an amazing statement. It's quoted in Matthew chapter 12 at length. Verses 1 to 3 of Isaiah 42 are quoted in Matthew chapter 12 so that you've got the exact Greek translation and that exact Greek translation is the very words you find that were said at the time of his baptism. In whom I am well pleased is taken from Isaiah 42. Behold my servant. Well here is an updated announcement that the servant has come. It's time. Well, immediately the Spirit drived him into the wilderness, my dear brethren and sisters, and he was tempted of the, of the devil 40 days. Well, I'm tempted, but I'm afraid I'll have to be driven from this platform at this time. We'll take up that theme tomorrow. I think it's unfortunate that the last hymn actually has to do with the temptation. Perhaps we could keep that one up our sleeve and, and choose another hymn.